Good morning. Let's say a prayer together as we hear the word. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. If you'd like to turn uh, to Exodus 20, 1 to 17, we're going to read that, but I'm sure you can see it behind me. Exodus 20, 1 to 17. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, above or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your covet your neighbor's, your neighbor's wife <laughs> or his male or female servant or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Just to clarify um, that uh, Ryan wasn't laughing at uh, coveting your neighbor's wife uh, to trivialize it. But isn't it interesting that when we hear, when we hear the commandments, I think that if he, on the heart level, some of us kind of uh, measure ourselves right away. Anybody do that? Did I, did I, did I, did I, did I, did I? Uh, in fact, when you read uh, the Ten Commandments, I think there's a few things that happen. Uh, one of the things that happen is some of us may hear, especially what's in verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, and then this is where we really pay attention, punishing children for the iniquity of their parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me. But perhaps what doesn't fall deeply on our hearts, our hearts is the counterpoint that is made, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation. So you have third and fourth generation punishment. Here you have to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. What do we do with the Ten Commandments, or more properly interpret the Ten Words? It seems that, especially in, uh, in the United States, there's been much concern of the loss of a Christian identity, and one of the markers of a Christian identity, it appears, in Western culture is this set of commandments. 
Uh, people have argued to keep it in municipal buildings or uh, to keep it in the courthouse. And yet when a survey was done of Americans discerning how many of them actually knew and could recite the commandments, it was staggering how many couldn't name them all. Just because we value something, at least with our lips, doesn't mean it actually is valued with our lives. I guess that's a principle. Uh, kind of like me and exercise, but I'm trying to fix that. But how do I preach on this? The first thing is I'm going to heed the caution of one commentator who said to me, trying to preach on all the commandments is like drinking too much hot chocolate. Tastes good for a while, but you'll surely get sick. And so a good preacher will often limit what he says. And so if you're sitting here and you're saying, you know what, Stu, I, I wish you would preach more on the coveting part or perhaps on the murdering part. We need to kind of get clarification. Uh, or perhaps some of those kind of juicy parts. Or for some parents sitting here saying, Stu, I wish you would preach on honoring your father and your mother. You know, I, I really want to preach on that. Uh, you may leave here disappointed. So I'm going to kind of uh, alleviate your disappointment by suggesting I'm going to be selective. And I'm going to be selective for a couple of reasons. One, for time's sake. But two, sometimes um, it's important to focus on one thing. Are you like me? Kind of let one thing sink in. Uh, so this morning, as I uh, prepare to share these thoughts with you, I pray that you would be open. We have this prayer that we recite together as a way of reminding ourselves that preaching can simply just be a task of exegetical prowess and understanding and, 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 and you know, good, good public speaking, or it could actually be a dynamic participation uh, in listening to what God may say. And so this morning, I trust that you would be open to hear what the Lord would say. As your pastor here for the last nine years, you would hear me repeatedly say that scripture has a context. We do ourselves a great service as the church when we ask what did it mean then before we ask what does it mean for us today. And in fact, the Ten Commandments begins with a particular uh, set of information. It starts this way, then God spoke all these words. He's speaking to Moses and to Israel, and he says, I am the Lord your God, not I will become the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Very significant. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Where we begin with the Ten Commandments is really important because God is not saying to Moses or to Israel or to us derivative of the faith that God has passed on through Moses and the prophets and through Jesus Christ has been fulfilled that we become people when we do what God says. In fact, the whole story of redemption would suggest that God acts first. In other words, it is the God who makes the people his own by liberating them from oppression that says, now that you are free, this is how you live. In fact, for those of you who've been with us as a community for the several years that I've been a pastor here, you would have heard me say that in order for people to think differently about themselves, God often must lead them out of places and into unfamiliar places so that there they would hear a new word spoken over them. You've heard me talk several times about liminality, a key subject in my dissertation. If anybody wants to read some profound insights, I will share it with you freely. But this lim there was too little laughter. 
that kind of puts me off a little bit. Anyway. Uh, you know, we, we, we've heard the analogy made of uh, tribal cultures in which when a boy reaches a certain age, he would be sent out into the wilderness. And we understand that he's sent out into the wilderness with purpose so that he could disassociate from being a boy by the tribe, uh, by the relationships that once defined him, and in the liminal space will be renamed in order that he would start to think of himself as an adult. That such separation is important. That a community pushes the kid to do that is significant. And that God would actually do this with Israel is significant to our understanding. It is the God who separates and saves and rescues from in order to do a work of naming in. It is the God who says, I do not want you to think of slaves, but I'm going to remove you from the places that has named you as such. And now I will do the, the work of holiness. Now I will establish with you what it means to be a holy people and a royal priesthood. Now I'm going to teach you how to live. You know, Christians have had this perspective of Christianity as, as well, we've been saved and we're good to go, miss that the entire biblical narrative suggests we have been slaves so that we would live true to the freedom that God has given us. And so these commandments are gift. They are gift, by the way, they are not supposed to be finite, and if you're a biblical scholar, you know that they are referenced at least three times in the Old Testament. They are not supposed to be something that is static, but they are supposed to be something that gives us a paradigm with which to discern what it means to live as those who are free. I know the irony in it. Set free, but now under new management is what God is saying. The gods of Egypt are no longer the gods of you. And therefore, if you are going to live as I, as, as, as me being your God, there are particular ways in which you have to live. You know, if you are a, a Christian and you're sitting here today and you're saying, you know, Stu, I've made a profession of faith. I've said yes to God. I've been faithful. I've, I've you know, as far as I can be, I've attended church. And, uh, uh, you know, I show up on Sundays and I, I even give to the church. I want to say, thanks be to God for you. But I want to also challenge you to consider that God has a particular way in which we ought to live as the people of God. A particular way that, 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 that challenges us to look at our world in a different way. And here's what I love about what God does. In the Ten Commandments, he kind of teaches us a principle that's really important. That our understanding and hence our proper worship of him as God enables us to have proper and right relationships with others. In other words... Not only does uh, you know, God ensure our freedom first and names us and says, now live in this way, he says that when you put me in the proper place in your life as a community that is seeking to live as those who are free, you are enabled to love others as I love you. Let's put it a different way. Any sentiment of Christianity that suggests that our worship of God is an end in and of itself, misses what God has rooted in the very covenant commitment to Israel, that your worship is transformative of your actions. Put another way for those more biblically inclined, your theology of worship to God will richly enable you to love others in the way that God 
loves you. Therefore, we cannot say to one another that it's just about me and Jesus. We cannot live a Christian faith that says I have a faith that's independent of the relationships I share with people. From the foundation of God's commands, he anchors those commands. Did you see at the center of the Ten Commandments is the Sabbath is the Sabbath instruction. Did you see that? Have you ever wondered why? If you study the commandments, and by the way, another scholar, because I read a lot of scholars, right? Another scholar said, you know, uh, the, the commandments are kind of divided into two sets. Do you see that? The first set deals with our relationship with God, and the second set deals with our relationships with one another. And for those astute theologians amongst us, and there are many, you know that Jesus said it differently. When asked, when pushed to say, what is the first commandment or the primary commandment, put it this way, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and what? And your neighbor as yourself. They're in doing what God is doing to Israel here, suggesting to us that Christian spirituality following him is about a love for him that also results in a love of the other. So, there's many preaching paths, and I've struggled with the text. Is it okay to say? If it bothers you that your pastor is struggling at times, you're in the wrong church. There are times where I look at the text and I say, what do I preach on here, Brenda? I mean, how, how do I take this and present it to the people? <laughs> Why are you guys laughing when I say Brenda? <laughs> you know that we actually really love each other, right? I, you know, She picks on me, but... Uh, how then shall I preach this? And I thought that the, the, the starting point could be, how then shall we live today as those whom God has set free? And I suggest to you that what the commands teach us is first and foremost what I've already shared, that faithfully worshiping God should lead to being able to love others in the way that God has designed us to love him. Another way of saying this is the way we attend to God the way in which we recognize who he is, the way in which we make time for him in our life, the way in which we say no to lesser gods, lesser idols, the way in which we cease from our attempts to try and control and manipulate him, that enables us to attend to our neighbor in a way that represents that we belong to him. In verse 2, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, Egyptian gods, Pharaoh considered himself a god. The ancient Eastern cultures had pantheons of gods. In other words, there was many gods, maybe a primary god and then some subject gods. It could be that the way to read this correctly is to hear God say, I know the kinds of divinity and divine that you've been used to. I know the ways in which you have been taught to think about other gods, but I'm suggesting to you that there is only one God and don't worship them. Now, why that context is important, or while it is important, I think that for many of us, we have to understand that this idea of other gods is still very prevalent in our culture, in our spirituality, in our lives today. They may not be the gods of the Egyptians, and they may not be the gods of the ancient Near East, but there are certainly things that have become prominent to us, so much so that they have replaced and vied for our attention in significant ways. 
You know, idolatry at its heart is about making something so significant that we spend our time there, that we go to it, that we seek after it, that we search for it. The big categories of idolatrism in our, in our world is sex, money, and power. And though the scripture speaks to a people who knew idolatry in its pagan format as the Egyptians worshipped several gods, we too are challenged to recognize that if we place God first, we must consistently ask ourselves and look at our lives and say, are there other competing realities that is upsurging the significance of this God to me and to us? I think that having no other gods before us is a challenge in our world today. The gods of materialism, the gods of consumption, the gods of pleasure, the self-centeredness that so easily pervades our life and our existence, the ways in which our constant choosing other things over the priority of the one who has set us free, whatever that might be, might be taking us down idolatrous roads. Now I say this to you, and I know it's not an easy thing to say. I think there's good ways in which we ought to live our lives, and if I'm suggesting to you that proper worship of God leads to proper love of our neighbor, I want to also suggest to you that when we live with God as the central figure of our worship, there is something that happens to our ability to deal with other things that are also important. God guides us discernment to know how to deal with things. When he is at the center of our life, when he is the greatest source of our hope and joy, if he is the one to whom we direct our lives and our being, he enables us to deal with the things we possess and the relationships we have in such a way that it does not become not only intrusive or interruptive to our relationship with him, but it finds its proper place. You can honor those who are your parents. You can live in such a way as to not want of others that belongs to them. It is only when this God becomes central to our lives and he becomes the most important reason to worship and to live that he is able to restructure the other things that so easily becomes our idols. I think it's interesting that he says you shall not make any other idols. What comes to your mind when you think of idol and Israel? Anybody? Richard, you're saying something. The cow? The calf? Yes. Remember the story of the calf? Now, when I've preached on the story of the calf, this is what I usually said, and I think it's a brilliant theological point. Maybe I'll publish it one day because I'm so proud of it. I'm just kidding. Some of you are just so, wow. Okay. The point that I made repeatedly is that in the absence of Moses, who represents God, the people want to fill the space. And so they recreate a God. Have you ever heard me preach on that? And I suggested to you by extension that it's the same with us today. In the absence, the perceived absence of ultimate worth and value, people make other things valuable. In other words, we have been created to worship something and in the perceived absence of true value, true worship, we create idols out of things to fill the gap, so to speak. 
But you know, you know there's, a, there's a point that I missed in preaching this. This is why I love preaching to you on a regular basis, on a weekly basis, because you do know, right, that I'm growing in my understanding as I go. Like when you graduate from Bible college or seminary, you don't know it all. I know, shocking, isn't it? And so I'm growing in my understanding, and here's how God has challenged me recently. He, he said to me that, could it also be, and this is based on the ancient way of, of worship and the ancient ways of creating these graven images, that one of the reasons why the ancients created these idols was that they felt that if they could create something tangible, they can exact control over that God. So in other words, their incantations, their vows, you know, the word that says, do not use the Lord's name in vain, could be referring to the ways in which the ancient Eastern people used their language and created these idols so that they would control the God and use him for their vested interest. Could it be that when the calf was created, it was Israel's way of saying, we want to control the God that has set us free. Could it be that when God speaks and says, you shall not have any other gods before you, he's not only speaking about choosing other gods, but also about the way in which people are prone to make this God serve their purposes, to limit him, to put him in a proverbial box so that he may serve their purposes and that they would not have to serve his You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This God who desires to be for you and me as he has for Israel, the very center of their worship. See, attempts to recreate God are attempts to control him. And again, although for, for some of us who like kind of contextual stuff and you go, oh, Stuart, I love when you talk about the historical stuff, I always think that, you know, the, the contextual stuff of Scripture always has to kind of bring us to a point of saying, now, where does this connect to my life? You know, uh, Stu, we don't, we don't uh, you know, at least as far as I know, and I hope you don't do this, we don't fashion with metal using your wife's jewelry uh, you know, a little calf at home, right, to worship. I know in some cultures this is still a means of worship. The, the icons matter greatly and the ways in which people still try to recreate this. But I think there are ways in which we all would be tempted to try and to bring God into our agenda for life. To try and, and structure him in such a way that he fits the philosophy uh, that will get us what we want. I think there's ways in which we are tempted to limit God in order to make him serve our purposes. And I think, just to be honest with you, sometimes that is revealed in our lives when God does not respond in ways that we would like him to respond. Sometimes that's revealed in our life when we become really, really disappointed that God has even at times not given us what we've longed for. I think that these commands are given to Israel not as a means of limiting them, but as a means of giving them life, true life, true meaning, true purpose. 
You see, somehow the Bible changes value systems. It, it doesn't value the same things that our culture often upheld. It doesn't pursue the kinds of things that we think we need to pursue. And sometimes when we come together as people who worship God, God is inviting us to remember that what he values often goes against what we value. I think that's why Jesus teaches us to pray prayers like, may your will be done and may your kingdom come. But I also wonder that if we look at the invitation to Sabbath, and by the way, in a few weeks we'll have Mark Buchanan here. Who's excited about that? Oh, two of you. Okay, I know, I know. The rest of you, while student, we don't get to hear you. That's really sad, right? That's what you're thinking. I'm trying really hard today, but anyway. Uh, Mark has written a book called The Rest of God, and he is by far more um, knowledgeable about the, the, the contours of the biblical understanding of Sabbath. And, and I think if you want to pick up a good book to help you kind of embrace the concept, understand what Sabbath is about, I encourage you to, to, to get a hold of this book uh, called The Rest of God. But here's just a passing comment on Sabbath. I think that there's a way to see the invitation that God gives to them to practice Sabbath as a means of him helping them to put him first. In order to practice Sabbath, the people had to refrain from their work. Ever notice how work becomes an idol? Well, sometimes it's kind of work is an idol because of what it can give us, which is really the idol, right? You know, so, so to practice Sabbath is to actually cease from some idolatry or the tendency towards it. Uh, to practice Sabbath is to, is to actually say as a community, because that's how they were supposed to do this, that we are not defined by our ability to provide for ourselves, but we place our confidence in the God who has led us out of Egypt and leading us into promise. You know, sometimes people have a, a problem. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll look at their Christianity this way. You know, I'm, I'm giving to God my time and my talent. And in our bad moments, look at how much I give. You know what Sabbath is? Sabbath is saying God has given us absolutely everything we have. Uh, God has, has done for us and given for us the ability to create wealth, the ability to possess things, the ability to make decisions. This God is the one that is the source of our entire being. Sabbath is a means of reminding ourselves that he is the ultimate provider. Now, you know, when, when God created, and by the way, this is how it's put. Are you still with me? You say amen? Yeah, okay. Um, when we read this particular scripture, Exodus 20, we find out that, that, that the way in which the Sabbath is pronounced or given as a command is, is that because God himself has rested. Have you, you, you realize that? So in other words, there's another aspect to practicing Sabbath, and it, has, it goes something like this. When we learn to rest well, as God had rested when he created, we bear the image of the one who has set us free. To actually rest, which is at the heart of Sabbath, is to reveal the God who creates but also rests. 
In other words, one of the most profound ways we witness in the world is not to join the rat race in this continual perpetual cycle of going, of going, of going, but we can rest, we can learn to become quiet, we can learn to cease from our doing, for in so doing we reveal that we have a greater power in whom we trust than ourselves and that we can be at peace even when the rest of the world says consume, pursue, get. There's a sense in which practicing Sabbath could be one of the ways in which we speak to a culture that ties their value into their output. Practicing Sabbath could be a way in which we remind ourselves of who God is so that we are able and have the resource and the rest from which to love others. I want to make a very silly example, but when I'm tired, I'm a terrible parent. And yes, I'm sometimes a terrible husband. When my life is driven by this consistent sense of doing, accomplishing, I do not have the capacity to listen well, to pay attention to the deep yearnings of my heart and the yearnings of others. When I live as if this invitation to know God is not given to me in the invitation to rest, I live as a restless one. Egypt, you could not practice Sabbath, but now that I have led you out of Egypt, you must learn to rest. You must learn to rest. Slaves don't rest. <laughs> you know, we sing that song, I'm no longer a slave. Is it true? Is it true in our ability to, to, to trust the Lord, to worship him, to be attentive to him? Now, I didn't mean to speak on Sabbath, but I got to tell you, one of my memories of Sabbath was, was nothing about gift to me like Jesus reframes it in the New Testament. Sabbath to me was about things I wasn't allowed to do. Don't go to the shop. That was like one of the seven deadly Sabbath sins. And I think a hidden subliminal message was don't look happy either. <laughs> but what if, like these commands, God invites us into his rest and to allow others to rest because we are resting? I remember working for a person uh, once who, who said to me, Stu, you're working late a lot of times, you know, and you need to go home. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful to have a boss like that? Can we just say amen, you know, to bosses like that? And then I sat there and I said, I don't feel like I want to go home. You know why? Because he doesn't go home. <laughs> and then I had the courage in that moment and I said, you know, it's, it's easier for me to rest and take time off if you actually take time off. But subliminally, you're communicating to me that I need to be here. Whether you say with your words that I should go home with your lifestyle, you're practicing something completely different. 
I think that we need to practice Sabbath so that we can free people from the burden that they feel. I feel that you need to practice Sabbath so that we can give others rest. It is when we come to rest in God. Man, this has got to be from God because it's not in my notes. I'm looking down here just to make sure. But you know, there's a way in which when we learn to live this way, we enable others. Did you see the sequential nature of the Sabbath command? When you rest, you give others rest. They must be off the hook also. Your servants, your family, your children, your livestock, when we learn to rest, we enable others to, to find this peace. Thanks be to God. That is good preaching. Amen. Hallelujah. And even if you did not say that, I said it. <laughs> Come to me, all who are weary, all who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. You see, we can go about trying to stop ourselves from coveting. <laughs> I, hope, I hope we will try to do that. By telling ourselves, you know, uh, I'm just not going to want Pastor Stu's Audi. I know, I know some of you are just struggling. <laughs> yes, I drive an Audi. God has blessed me. Uh, you know, some of us, we look to our neighbor and we go, man, I, I work as hard as them, but I don't have what they have. You ever found that? You know, uh, God, I, I, I'm doing my thing, but I, I still find myself kind of just looking over and saying, man, boy, I, I wish I could play the piano like Mo." You know, what, what, what stops us from these wrong intentions? Because Jesus puts it this way. It's not simply to say it, but you actually, the moment you think it, you know, Jesus is really hard, isn't it? He goes, you're in trouble. I get a sense that the way to deal with those things is not through this hard line, let's put the Ten Commandments up on a wall. Because we all know this, you can put commands on the wall, doesn't mean people will obey it in their hearts. But what if... The gift of the commandments to us today as the church today, hearing this message today, is this. Return our worship to the one who is worthy. And worship him in such a way that you will rest in him. For when you do rest in him, you find your sufficiency in him. And you do not long for that which others possess, for you have found in him all that you need. We need to do that a lot. I sometimes just go, Jesus, just do it once and for all for me. Have you been there? You know, you're doing well in one week, and then midweek you go, I blew it again. I drove home praying. I'm not going to yell at my children. Five minutes in. There I am yelling, and I want to sing Carrie with Jesus take the wheel, but it's too late. <laughs> if you find yourself trying so hard to live into this reality, only to find yourself kind of stumble. You know, I, I, I want to go back to Sabbath. I think the reason there's a, a Sabbath cycle in Scripture that is cast, that is brought forward in Jesus is because I think we have to constantly enter into his rest. <laughs> 
until the Lord comes, until he renew all things, until we all finally can breathe out and say it is finished. Maybe there is this, this invitation for us to, on an ongoing basis, learn how to practice this. I know, I know that in my life, I often forsake the things that brings health to me. I think that when we forsake Sabbath, we forsake the very gift of God that brings health, not only to us, but to the relationships we have with one another. Are you your best when you're tired? Are you driven, anxious, concerned? Is it hard for you to be at peace, knowing that even when you're not trying to fix and manage and grow and get, that God is faithful? The ability to rest well only begins when we hear the affirmation that is given to us at the outset of the commands. I am the Lord your God. And he is. <laughs> and he is. He is faithful. Can I get an amen? <laughs> he is faithful. He's faithful. You know, the, the church at worship is a church that is drawn into that reality that he is our God. This morning as I close my time of sharing with you from the word, I invite you to respond as the Lord leads you, whether it be in prayer at these benches that are our altar whether it be in meditation and reflection right where you are, whatever it is that the Lord is inviting you and talking to you about, I pray that you might be responsive, not only in this moment, but in the days and the weeks, the months and the years ahead. In a few moments, we'll have some sharing as our Skyview Stories picks up on this theme. <laughs> uh, but I'm going to invite uh, Roman to come. And Roman, I, I know we're changing the script. Is that okay? Uh, just a little bit. Your worship team, too, that might be helpful. And um, we're just going to kind of practice a little bit Sabbath right here. Can we do that? Um, we're going to kind of quiet ourselves and allow the Holy Spirit to minister to us today. Uh, one of the things you might want to do, and I know this year some of you are going to get a little nervous, but you may want to just take a deep breath and breathe out. <laughs> one of the ways of praying sometimes is to kind of say, God, Whatever, whatever is here that's kind of hurting, holding, binding, weighing, I just want to give it to you today. Whatever is keeping me up, whatever is creating anxiety, whatever makes me feel like I cannot rest, I want you to grant me your grace and your mercy. But let me pray. Father God, I know this morning that... Um, I do not want to preach as one who, one, is uh, not practicing what I preach. And so I ask for your mercy and your forgiveness. I pray for our community here today who I know, Father, most of these dear loved ones that you deeply love and know <laughs> desires to live a life that brings honor and glory to you, not only for their sake, but for friends and family, for children. 
And Father, if there is conviction that we hear today from your word, may it be conviction that leads us to rest, that leads us to peace, that leads us to hope. There is nothing greater than the grace of God that is able to do immeasurably more than we often think. Whatever it is, however big, however small, your grace is sufficient. In Jesus we pray, amen.